This week on the Backtable Podcast. You're trying to really maximize the curate for these patients. To, again, like you said, this cookbook of let's go from 80% recurrence-free survival, or in this case, let's just call it cure because we don't talk about RFS so much and PFS and, and, and germ cell as we do just pure cure. So you want to improve that 80 to, say, 90% or 92%. What does that cost? And if it's going to cost everybody, 100% of the patients, additional chemotherapy, and you think, well, carbo is not that toxic, we don't really know that. We don't know what the long-term toxicity of even one cycle of carbo is. That's why we moved away from single dose of carbo in the adjuvant setting for stage one seminoma, right? So I think we want to, again, like I said earlier, we want to cure the patients with the least sort of burden of treatment. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Sia Danishman from USC, Department of Urology, where he is the uh, chief of urologic oncology, a great friend and a mentor, and a recognized expert in germ cell tumors. Sia, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Aditya. Thanks for having me on again. I'm thrilled. It's a really cool to be releasing an episode on testis cancer for Testis Cancer Awareness Month, which is April. And B, it's just so exciting to have all this new progress development in testis cancer kind of coming through the pipelines, really at all at all level. Today, we'll focus our conversation on stage two seminoma, which in my opinion has gotten a lot of attention over the last two to three years. Maybe we just kind of jump on into it, Sia. There's been some new ideas that are coming through, some new paradigm shifts. A lot of those have really been spearheaded out of your group in Southern California. But let's just talk about defining stage two seminoma. How do you kind of think about this in your mind? Yeah, we're talking about someone with suspected disease outside of the testicle. So for stage two, we're talking about lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum, and it's pretty much clinically staged by size, right? And number of lymph nodes, perhaps, but mostly by size. So for stage 2A disease, it's a few lymph nodes, all less than two centimeters. If you start to have more than five lymph nodes or any lymph node greater than two centimeters, you move into stage 2B. And if any lymph node is, is greater than five centimeters at stage 2C. So those are the sort of various substages within stage 2A. And of the stage 2 seminomas, I would say most of them fall in that 2A and 2B range, whether they present that way or relapse after stage 1 after a period of surveillance. Perfect. And, you know, we'll kind of touch on some of these nuances, primary metastatic versus relapsing on surveillance. I was thinking kind of for today's conversation, the the two C's, the big ones, the large ones, the bulky ones, in my mind, that's kind of a high risk disease. We want to treat it with systemic therapy, and that's pretty much going to be good risk directed chemotherapy, barring any super unusual circumstances. Is that how you kind of think about it as well? Pretty much. I think you bring up a great point. There are some very unusual circumstances on occasion where we do operate on a patient with a large mass, one that perhaps we've seen the growth over a long period of time. And it's that single mass, for instance, was missed, you know, eight months ago, it was three centimeters, and now it's only five centimeters, something like that. 
or the patient has a contraindication to to systemic chemotherapy. There are rare cases, but I absolutely agree. I think the mainstay of therapy for the 2C disease is going to be systemic therapy, namely uh, for our centers, BDP times three. Most of these patients, almost all of them are good risk disease, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, I, I agree. There's going to be some kind of extended spectrum candidates. Had a young man with polycystic kidney disease, some pretty marginal kidney function, and we thought it would probably be worthwhile to see if we can get through this with surgery, and he actually did just perfectly fine. Um, but I think, you know, the bulk of the newer data emerging concepts are, are really in this more limited nodal disease, two centimeters, three centimeters, not necessarily bulky multifocal lymph nodes. Yeah. No, I totally agree. That's exactly right. You know, maybe we'll just kind of run through standard options. You know, if I were to pull up the NCCN guidelines today, what are the things that I would see for a stage two seminoma? Maybe we just stratify it by 2A and 2B. Yeah, and, and this is how I pretty much start most of my lectures is what the standard treatment options are currently in the NCCN guidelines. So for clinical stage 2A, the primary treatment would be radiation therapy to include the para-aortic and ipsilateral iliac lymph node chain to a dose of 30 gray or primary chemotherapy, whether it's BEP times 3 or EP times 4. I always think it's important to really kind of work with our radiation oncologist, even as the urologic oncologist, sometimes just that gentle reminder of the dosing is not trivial. You know, of course, for the two Bs, the slightly larger nodes, the multifocal nodes, many times that'll get pushed to the 36 gray. Well, if it was you, you know, and you're just presented with the standard options, radiation or, or chemo in this context, how do you kind of approach it? I'm very concerned about late side effects. I mean, toxicities of systemic therapies and radiation therapies. Uh, you and I both know that 20, 30 years later, we're operating on these patients for various reasons. And uh, someone's had radiation, for instance, for seminoma 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we sort of feel it in the retroperitoneum, right? And and the very reason they got that secondary malignancy may have been, the radiation may have been a contributing factor. So I'm very concerned. These are patients who have an excellent prognosis, uh, no matter how we treat them. We know the vast, vast majority of them are good risk, so that they should be cured with hopefully, you know, usually one modality. We look for options in these patients, that one that offers them the least morbidity with the highest chance of cure. And I think that's sort of the paradigm right now in, in treating all of early stage testis cancer. I always tell patients, look, chemo is curative, and if you need it, uh, you need it, and you'll go through just fine. But if there are alternate options available for patients, such as we do, for instance, for stage 1 non-seminoma and stage 1 seminoma for sure, we offer surveillance because the vast majority of patients are cured without further systemic treatment. So there's mounting evidence now that these systemic therapies have long-term side effects. And so we're, we're looking for alternatives for these patients. You know, I think this idea of early stage disease monotherapy is pretty profound. And I just have these Kaplan-Meier graphics of cardiovascular disease and secondary malignancies, especially when you get radiation and chemotherapy kind of like seared in my brains where you see this like exponential rise in, in these two fairly catastrophic side effects. And the way I think about it, okay, radiation should be curative. It's a local regional option and call it like 90% of patients. If you happen to be in that 10% of patients that has a relapse and requires therapy, now we've got, you know, you're still curable, but we've got kind of a pretty serious problem on our hands in terms of management of the long-term potential side effects. So at our center, we've typically, if it's going to be either between radiation and chemotherapy, we've typically elected for chemotherapy. Do you have any opinions on that? 
certainly for the larger 2Bs. I agree. And if you look at the guidelines, I think that the preferred is the systemic therapy BP times 3 versus EP times 4. And we use BP times 3, again, to decrease the fourth cycle of cisplatin and fourth cycle of etoposide and spare them. I think most patients tolerate bleomycin quite well. For the larger patients or the stage 2Bs and 2Cs, certainly uh, lean towards chemotherapy in those patients. And just to make sure you know, we're kind of on the same page. The side effects that I'm kind of most worried about for radiation in particular are going to be the secondary malignancies, which we see. And then, of course, you know, there's cardiovascular disease, the shorter-term fatigue and some enteritis, perhaps, but those are those are pretty, pretty mild. And then for chemotherapy, I think for the first 30 years after the introduction of platinum-based, it was just such a wonderful thing to have these cures. And then we really started to see the cardiovascular disease, the neurotoxicity, the nephrotoxicity, the shortened life expectancy, the decrease in fertility, the psychosocial impact of it. So, you know, I think there's really been an increasing understanding of really what the long-term effects are. Is that what you're like the big ones, secondary cancers, heart disease, and then a whole host of other stuff? Absolutely. And don't forget tinnitus and and hearing loss, which, uh, you know, one one recent paper showed that high-frequency hearing loss that that persists and actually gets worse with age. So these long-term morbidities from chemotherapy and radiotherapy are real. We're seeing them. And there's a host of benign things as well. I've I've seen a bunch of PGA strictures and ureteral strictures occur many, many years out. And the only risk factor was that radiation for seminoma many years prior. And or sometimes the patients are having surgery for some other reason makes the surgery more complicated because of that radiation, even though it was a lower dose and certainly not what we're used to seeing with prostate state-type radiation. It's not that heavy a sort of fibrotic and desmoplastic reaction, but but certainly, again, we absolutely feel it. And I think it's also worth mentioning that if we do something without pathological verification that there's cancer, kind of extrapolating from the non-seminomal literature that 20, 30% of people would actually just have reactive lymph nodes or negative lymph nodes if you went in and surgically removed them. That's exactly right. And, and I, we'll talk about this a little bit further down uh, in the discussion that, you know, we're treating these patients based on an assumption. These are lymph nodes in the landing zone. So the assumption is they're positive. Very few of these patients actually undergo a biopsy of the lymph nodes prior to treatment. But we're discovering, you know, with, with non-semino, we've known this for a long time. Like you said, it's up to 30% of these lymph nodes are actually reactive. They're negative. And in seminomas, it can be anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20% that are negative despite two centimeter lymph node in the, in the landing zone. So these are some of the things we learned in the, in the, in the recent clinical trials that are ongoing. So I feel like we've got a decent understanding of why something different that between the toxicities of chemotherapy, between the toxicities of radiation, and between a very real over-treatment rate without kind of pathological verification of disease, that maybe we could do better. And we'll, we'll kind of run through it, but when you think about the newer emerging paradigm strategies, how, how do you kind of categorize those in your head and, and maybe we'll just run through them one by one? Well, honestly, I mean, there, there's not much. It's either you're having chemotherapy or radiation therapy for the disease or surgery and RPLND. And th- this is not something we've thought about for seminomas. We tend to stay away from surgery in stage one because most of them are cured with orchiectomy alone. So we're not doing RPLND there. Stage two, like we've been talking about, usually treated with either radiation or chemotherapy. And then the stage three in the chemo, and, and we rarely operate on the post-chemo seminoma as well because of the intense desmoplastic reaction. And the fact that there are more than 90% of them are all just fibrotic reaction and, and rind and surgery is, is rarely curative in that setting. 
So we've sort of not in our mind thought about surgery and radiation, but by surgery, I mean, you know, the RPLND. But again, this is something that I thought, well, why, why should it be different? For instance, for stage 2A non-seminoma, we very much think of RPLND as a treatment option. Why shouldn't it be the same for seminoma? If, in fact, there should be more reason we should consider this because seminomas tend to be a little bit more indolent in general. They tend to relapse in the retroperitoneum a lot more often than they do in the chest like non-seminomas can. So this paradigm shift sort of started approximately like 10, 12 years ago when we started doing some of these RPLNDs for early stage of metastatic seminoma. Perfect. I guess part of that was like a read my mind question. And in my <laughs> mind, the emerging concepts are surgery, monotherapy, RPLND. And we'll kind of jump into the data and, and what that kind of looks like a modern RPLND. I think there's been some interest in surgery plus adjuvant therapy, either carboplatin. There's been some efforts to combine focal radiation plus a single cycle of carboplatin. And then some efforts to decrease the number of drugs and cycles of drugs for seminoma. Is that reasonably comprehensive? Yeah, I think that pretty much summarized all the efforts over the past decade. And, and uh, some of those trials are all coming to head now with, with the results coming out all back to back. Like you said, there's a flurry of activity. We, we almost have been thinking about the same issues six, seven years ago. So like you said, it, it's great to have options. And, and uh, certainly these trials have focused on a less common stage in seminoma but, or in germ cell tumor in general, but I'm happy to see so much activity in this space. Totally. I mean, sometimes I have to remind myself that despite my kind of opinions and biases, it really is wonderful that people are just thinking about this and how to make the treatments better and more tolerable. Let's start out with surgery, monotherapy. So the impetus was, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, in retrospect, it's so obvious. Why not? It takes a little bit of time to sit and think about the disease. And RPLND, this is going to be, you know, surgical removal of retroperitoneal lymph nodes. And, and one of the things that I, I've got to say is so many patients, when they come in to talk about RPLND, have done their Google searching, and it sounds like this like fairly horrific affair. What, what does RPLND look like in, in your hands or at USC? Very different operation. I think patients are misled by these stories, most of which are post-chemo RPLNDs and, and these sort of data from 20 years ago or experiences from 20, even 30 years ago where these are massive cases, and some are still, but, you know, stem to sternum type of incisions and five-day hospital stay and nasogastric tubes and so on and so forth. But this looks very, very different nowadays. As you know, I do these through a very small midline incision with reasonable body habitus, about an eight to 10 centimeter midline incision. And I do it in an extraperitoneal fashion, which really expedites the recovery for the patient. So especially for the two A's where there's no desmoplastic reaction from the chemotherapy, we stay completely extraperitoneal throughout the case and are able to do the surgeries the same. If you were to walk in in the middle of this operation, the exposure is exactly the same. The limits are the same and templates are the same. But having that bowels kept within the peritoneal cavity really expedites our recovery and patients are often most commonly able to go home the next day. So the median hospital stay for this operation for, at our center is, is one day. So it makes it a lot more attractive option for patients when they know, well, it's a one-day hospital stay, smaller midline incision, the recovery is about two to three weeks as opposed to 
you know, a big operation with large morbidity and things like that. You know, the morbidity is generally very low for this operation. Again, these are not the big, massive post-chemo RPLNDs that you and I do need vascular reconstruction and nephrectomies and adjuvant surgeries and things like that. So I think we have to keep that in mind. And the colleagues in medical oncology and radiation oncology need to keep that in mind because they haven't seen this new data or they're not familiar with the newer sort of techniques of, uh, of doing the surgery. And others are doing minimally invasive uh, operations with a uh, robotic RPLND. I won't delve too much into that, but I think that's a conversation in and of itself. But either way, I mean, I think the morbidity has reduced uh, quite a bit. Totally. And I feel like with the honestly enhanced recovery pathways, multimodal pain control, early ambulation, early diet, extensive incentive spirometry, that honestly the, the hospitals stay for an open surgery, whether extraperitoneal or transperitoneal shouldn't be longer than about two days. Then for the minimally invasive ones, I think the data would suggest that usually about a day is fairly typical. And then of course, you know, the, the major feared long-term complication would be anejaculation. I would totally agree with you that for a chemotherapy-naive RPLND nerve-sparing with or without templates, you really should have a pretty good functional outcome. I totally agree. I think, again, these are not the very difficult operations that we do. On occasion, there's a lymph node right there, the inner aortic cable area that uh, raises some concern. But most, almost all of these were able to do nerve-sparing procedures with excellent maintenance of anterograde ejaculation. So again, both functionally and from a recovery standpoint, a uh, very different operation than what's sort of out there in the literature. See, uh, for those who may not be familiar, spearheaded the SEMS trial surgery for early stage metastatic seminoma. Can you just like tell us a little bit about that trial, how many patients, how patients typically did? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Thank you for bringing that up. So this concept, like I said, I, I started thinking about this over 10 years ago and really came upon it surreptitiously when I was doing a RPLND for what I thought was a non-seminoma, what was a non-seminoma in, in the primary testicle, had one single lymph node and ended up when I did the RPLND pathology showed one that one lymph node was actually a pure seminoma. Obviously, you can have this situation where you have non-seminal testicle and only that seminoma, this portion of it has metastasized to the lymph node. So it got me thinking, why don't we do seminoma RPLNDs and in, in two-way seminomas? So I started doing it, and, and we had a case a series of four cases published in 2015 with Brian Hoop, who was a fellow with us at the time and is now associate professor at Loma Linda. And these four cases, they did really well. They were disease-free. None of them got adjuvant therapy. Actually, one of them was a 2C seminoma, one of the ones that we couldn't diagnose what it was. The primary was burnt out and uh, the markers were negative. We didn't even know what it really was. Turned out to be a, a seminoma. It was about six centimeters. So in any case, these patients did really well. And I thought, well, we really need a prospective trial and we need bigger numbers. Uh, obviously, you know, four cases is just four cases. And we looked through the literature that were total, including ours, only 15 cases in the literature who had stage 2A disease and went on to get RPLND. But the relapse, the recurrence rate was, in the literature, was zero for these 15 cases. So again, we went by that, started writing a prospective trial, multi-center trial, looking at if this was a phase two clinical trial of surgery and early metastatic seminoma. Initially, it was limited to stage 2A disease. We wanted to keep it clean, just limited to the lower stage disease, no prior chemotherapy. We kept it all open surgery to, again, be very uniform in our approach. In the templates, we had suggestions, but it was difficult to have all the surgeons sort of comply with, with a certain template. That was sort of surgeon discretion. But for the most part, most of the centers on the right 
would do at least the inner aortic cable and some paraaortic. And then on the left, it was interaortic cable and not necessarily the, the paracable. So in any case, this started uh, approximately 2016 or so. You, of course, were a great contributor to this trial, and I thank you for that. You came on uh, rather late by the time you got started, but you contributed a major portion of the trial, so it was fantastic. But it was 15 sites that got activated. Initially, we had 46 patients for the trial to prove sort of efficacy. We were shooting for 75% recurrence-free survival in two years. And after a while, we realized this trial is actually accruing quite well. And in order to allow other sites to come on and sort of increase the generalizability of the trial, we increased the sample size to 55 just to have better stats. So we actually ended up closing before four years. It was accruing quite well, so we closed six months early, and we just recently sent in our results for publication, which will hopefully be out in JCO very shortly. And uh, this was recently also presented at GUASCO. Fantastic. And I think the kind of take-homes for me, 55 patients at two years, nobody died. That's always a good thing. We want to kind of maintain these survival rates, recurrence-free survival right around 84, 85%, which I think is pretty commensurate with what's been seen for local regional treatments. And like you mentioned, you know, with modern RPLND high volume centers, I think that's probably worth emphasizing that there was some kind of quality control built into the study that patients, you know, really did well with a fairly minor complication rate in importantly, preservation of ejaculation. Right. I just wanted to mention sort of the presentation because a lot of people ask, were these stage one relapses or were they stage two at presentation? And it was mostly stage one with recurrences. So we had 63% of the patients, about two thirds of them being stage one with relapse, as as you can imagine. And then about 35% of them were initial stage two. And there were two patients with clinical stage 2B. Most of them were clinical stage 2A. What happened is while we were accruing to the trial, we realized a lot of patients are falling between that two, three centimeter mark where they're like 2.3, 2.4 centimeters. And in order to, again, increase the generalizability of, of the trial, we ended up increasing the uh, size criteria to uh, three centimeters, as was it, the cutoff point for radiation versus chemotherapy and the NCCN guidelines. So that was an amendment that came a little bit later in the trial to allow these, you know, 2.3, 2.4. We didn't think it was really clinically meaningful to have a you know three millimeter difference between a two and a three centimeter lymph node. So we did include some clinical two Bs in there as well, but most of these were ones with relapse. And we had good median follow-up is 33 months with minimum of one year and the last patient was five years out from treatment. Only a single patient received adjuvant carboplatin one month after surgery and was a single dose. In general, we recommended no adjuvant therapy. Unfortunately, it was just that one patient who got the carbo and remained disease-free. And like you said, the, the recurrence rate was about 22%, 12 patients out of the 55 who had relapses, and the median time to relapse was about 10 months. So the, these relapses are in general happening pretty early so that we can catch them early. And I think, you know, for the vast majority of patients, they were cured without any further therapy. So the 12 that had a recurrence, 10 of them underwent chemo, most of which was BP times three. There were two patients who underwent additional surgery and were cured again without any further systemic therapy. And like you mentioned, the overall survival was 100%. So 10 of the 55 ended up getting surgery plus salvage chemotherapy. But again, most of them were cured with surgery alone. And even though our, our follow-up, I think, is pretty good at three, it's almost three years, fortunately, we haven't seen any you know late uh, relapses as of yet. 
Yeah, and I think we'll obviously kind of continue to learn as more studies come out. And there's meta-analyses. You know, there's, of course, Peter Albers has a prime test trial. Then the Co-Trims study, another one from Germany, recent publication of the Indiana experience. And once those all kind of get accumulated, we'll ostensibly learn a little bit more about templates, ideal patient selection, and things along those lines. Maybe I'll ask you, what's, what's kind of an ideal patient for a surgery, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's the patient who has either one or at most two clinically positive lymph nodes. So any any in the in the landing zone, it would be someone who has two two and a half centimeter lymph nodes that's isolated. And because once you get beyond that, once you have three nodes and they're in just separate places, then you do an RPL and D, you end up having twelve positive lymph nodes. I think the relapse rates are going to be different. So the ideal patient for me is really anyone with clinically positive lymph node in the in the landing zone. Biopsies are not routine. Again, I think the RPLND is therapeutic. I think we don't know what the false negative rate of biopsies might be. PET, we're not sure is all that helpful in this setting. But what is helpful, and you're the world's expert on this, is the microRNA. I'm sure you will discuss this a little bit further as perhaps we can choose the patients a little bit better with microRNA 371. But like you mentioned, you know, there there's growing surgical experience with this disease is not just our trial, but like you mentioned, the prime test trial from Peter Albers in Germany, they had a progression-free survival of 70% with a median follow-up of 32 months. A little bit lower, I think they, they had a bit more wider selection criteria for their patients. They allowed prior carboplatin, they allowed robotic surgery, and so a little bit different criteria. But the Cotrims trial that you mentioned from Axel Heidenreich, Cologne, is very, very similar to ours and I think they're approaching two-year follow-up. They presented this at GUASCO. Their relapse rate is less than 10%. They've only had two patients out of their 22 or so that have had a, a relapse, but they're still following the patients for extended follow-up and again, 100% survival there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that if I had to like pick an ideal patient, it would be somebody that relapsed on surveillance, like you mentioned, versus a primary metastatic where you have some natural history information. I think it's kind of convenient. There's just like less than three rules, less than three centimeters, less than three nodes, primary landing zone. And what I've really started doing for almost all of my stage two patients that are considering surgery is I'll actually book their surgery out in six to eight weeks, repeat all their imaging and marker about a week prior to the scheduled operation. And if the node involutes, or if they, of course, develop metastases, then you cancel. And in our series of patients receiving RPLND for seminoma with the microRNA prior, in the 10 patients, you know, nine out of 10 of them did have cancer and none of them relapsed and required adjuvant therapy. So, I mean, that's a small little sliver, but um, that's, that's kind of my ideal patient. What do you think about that, Sia? I love that. And I think we're going to incorporate that. We're going to call it the Aditya rule, the yeah, rule of less than threes. That's a great broad inclusion criteria. And again, we're learning more as we're going further along with our experience. We are treating a little bit of larger lymph nodes. Again, it has to be isolated. Like you said, if we have natural history on it, particularly, we will sort of push the envelope a little bit with bigger lymph nodes and even four, even five centimeters. If you have natural history and you can see that if it's taken over six months and this has not metastasized any further, then the biology is a little bit more indolent that perhaps surgery is the answer. And also reoperation, it's completely knee-jerk that if a patient following RPLND has a relapse, that you think, oh, chemo is the answer, you go to chemotherapy, which absolutely can be curative. But again, is there an opportunity to recure the patient with another surgical procedure? Where was the relapse? Is this in field? Is it out of field? 
how fast did it grow, allow it to sort of grow a little bit over a short period of time to see what the biology is, and perhaps do a reoperation in that in that patient. And again, in the trial, we've had two patients, and in my personal experience, I've had a few more where we've been able to salvage these patients with sort of these atypical recurrences, perhaps outside the field, and again, avoid that systemic therapy for these patients. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, I think sometimes the value of multidisciplinary tumor boards are to make these decisions in the context and with the support of your colleagues and your peers. I mean, it gets so nuanced, right? What was the histology? If it's like a teratoma, for instance, you're not going to do them any favors by reflexively giving them chemotherapy. And I had a patient very similar that maybe 12 months after initial surgery developed a pelvic recurrence just distal to the ureter. And, you know, we kind of short interval imaged it, didn't change much and just went in, did a lifted a section very routine, like a cystectomy, prostatectomy, and two and a half years later, he's perfectly fine, chemotherapy naive. Yeah, but I think that's another kind of paradigm shift. It's like, ah, recurrence, you know, and I mean, and maybe even we'll be revisiting some carefully observed low-level marker positive patients where it might be an informed decision that, hey, you're at a higher risk of relapse, but Exactly. And I think, you know, that you brought up a very good point, this this informed decision. So these cutoffs that we have for what's considered successful, <clears throat> if it's not a high morbidity procedure, then the needle moves in terms of picking that therapy and what the, the therapeutic benefit of that particular therapy might be. So if an RPL indeed, and I had this discussion with, with a patient who was trying to convince me to do surgery on a, on a 2C disease, and I said, look, the relapse rates are going to be higher. He said, I understand that, but there's a finite actual cure rate with your operation. Is, is that right? And I said, yes, there is. So I think part of it is the patient's acceptance of what that cure rate might be, whether it's 50%, 70%, 80%. And and if they recover well, this is not a high morbidity procedure, they may accept a much lower threshold for success with that particular modality, i.e. in this particular case, RPLND. Is that how you think or talk to your patients? Or do you sort of go by the book and if it's less than 70%, it's it's going to be systemic therapy? No, I mean, I think I've taken an anti-paternalistic, you know, I try to listen to what's important to them. You know, we do it all the time for prostate cancer or bladder cancer, kidney cancer surveillance. I mean, you know, have a conversation. There are risks. There's pros. In this case, we're really talking about an increased risk of relapse is going to be the main one. And if they understand that, then that's what they're choosing for themselves. I think it's totally reasonable. No, I think the reflexive, I mean, as you know, Sia, you know, reflexive cookbook management of germ cell tumors leads to, to mismanagement. But I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, surgeries, it's probably coming, probably work itself into the guidelines. And, and, you know, a lot of people are offering these at high volume centers of excellence. And we're going to learn. Like I mentioned earlier, there's there's a small case series out of the UK from the Royal Mars. And they have a lot of amazing work on, on testis cancer, really in the early stages. And, and they've got a study of adjuvant carboplatin after RPLND. I understand the kind of rationale, but I'm not sure how I feel about it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll ask you for your opinion, <laughs> then I'll then I'll offer mine. Well, I I know how I feel about it, so I'll, I'll share my feelings. I think the idea is comes from a good place. You're trying to really maximize the curate for these patients. To again, like you said, this cookbook of let's go from eighty percent recurrence-free survival, or in this case, let's just call it cure, because we don't talk about RFS so much and PFS and in germ cell as we do just pure 
cure. So you want to improve that 80 to say 90% or 92%. What does that cost? And if it's going to cost everybody 100% of the patients additional chemotherapy, and you think, well, carbo is not that toxic, we don't really know that. We don't know what the long-term toxicity of even one cycle of carbo is. That's why we moved away from single dose of carbo in the adjuvant setting for stage one seminoma, right? So I think we want to, again, like I said earlier, we want to cure the patients with the least sort of burden of treatment. So if you're going for surgery, then surgery should be the curative modality. And we shouldn't be treating patients with any adjuvant therapy after this. Similarly with radiation, and, and as you know, there's a recent trial that looked at reduced dose radiation and adding carboplatin to reduce the doses of radiation. And again, I think that's maybe moving in a direction that may be counter to what we're saying, that's combining chemotherapy with radiation. And these are additive sort of cumulative toxicities that, that will accumulate over the next few decades for the patients. So again, my feeling is even if you go in for a stage 2A and end up pathological stage 2C because you have six, seven positive lymph nodes, then, you know, let's see what happens. A finite number of patients are cured with this approach and the ones giving one of adjuvant carbo or two of adjuvant carbo will cure some, not all, and then you expose toxicities for the ones who really don't need it. So either you need chemotherapy, you'll, you're going to get BP times three upon relapse, or you're, you're going to be cured with the surgery alone. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, you know, microRNAs, I think before RPLND, they're going to be very informative. We're talking about non-micromyositic disease and, you know, the, the limited kind of case series that are out there. It seems to be highly predictive. I think also in the, in the post-operative setting, it's going to be extremely informative because, yes, there is over-treatment and there's the thrombocytopenias and the neutropenias and the impact on fertility that we, that we know that looks like in 20, 30 years, we don't know. But I think that I agree with you. You know, there's going to be a, still a lot of overtreatment. And, you know, again, kind of extrapolating from the non-seminoma literature, really nice paper from the group in Indiana that, you know, I think these historic numbers that were quoted of 85, 90% relapse-free survival for a pathological N1, 50% for an N2, and then 90% for an N3 are just really not contemporary. You know, patients really have a 80 plus recurrence free survival, regardless of, of the kind of final pathology staging. So maybe we'll say it's, we could maybe do a little bit better about adjuvant something else after RPLND, whether that's repeat surgery or carboplatin. We don't know if carboplatin is better or worse than good restriction chemo or EP times two or BEP times two. A lot of intriguing questions, but maybe monotherapy would still be the kind of goal here. And I think that kind of segues quite nicely into um, another trial that was presented pretty recently, the SACO 110 trial, where now we're basically looking at carboplatin, ostensibly for the systemic effects, plus higher doses of radiation to the node of interest only. You know, I think the numbers, progression-free survival, are pretty commensurate with what we're seeing with all of these next-generation iterations. But what, what are some of your concerns, if any? Yeah, again, I think we touched upon this before. My, my concern is you're combining chemotherapy with radiotherapy, and I think the toxicities can be cumulative. And, you know, the counterargument to that is that the radiation dose is lower. Uh, you know, we don't know what the cumulative toxicities are. But again, this concept of even combining these two, uh, we've learned from much earlier trials and studies that they are additive. They can lead to downstream 
side effects like we talked about in the beginning. The results are good. I mean, they have a three-year progression-free survival of about 93, 94%. I think those are good with minimal short-term toxicities. But again, to me, this is, this is not short-term. The other trial that we sort of touched upon was the SEMITEP trial that was a response-guided chemo based on PET scan done in the middle of treatment. And if the patients had a negative PET, they went on to receive one of carboplatin sort of to top it off. And the ones who were PET negative end up getting two additional cycles of EP without really any pathological uh, sort of confirmation. So one of the things I did in my GUASCO presentation uh, just recently, I, I sort of looked at SEMS and then the SAC0110 trial and SEMITEP trial and, and estimated for 100 patients how many cycles of chemotherapy it would take for the primary treatment as well as the relapse. And for SEMS, it would be 35 cycles for the ones who, who do relapse. For the SAC0110 trial, it was 119 cycles of chemo, and SEMITEP was 230 cycles of chemo. Now, again, this sort of highlights, and, and I would say all these patients are cured. Again, overall survival is about 100%. But look at the toxicities that accumulated in the number of patients, you know, 35 versus 119 for SAC10 versus 230 for SEMITEP. These are estimated numbers from uh, the trial based on uh, 100 patients. And we, for SEMITEP, for instance, we, we took the stage 2A and 2Bs only to try to estimate our numbers and try to avoid the two Cs. Again, the, these trials are great. Look, you know, maybe surgical expertise is not available everywhere. And, and perhaps these can be an option for, for patients who are going to receive chemo or radiation anyway. And these are a way to reduce, hopefully, complications in the future. But more and more, you know, patients have access to surgical centers of excellence. There are more of them than there were many decades ago. I think at, at the very least, we should have a discussion about surgery, uh, upfront surgery being the only curative modality for those patients. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. It is encouraging and exciting. And for any patient out there, I think it's you know really wonderful that people are continuing to think about novel, creative ways to manage this actually a relatively thin slice of the germ cell tumor population, to be honest. But I also just wonder, are we overcomplicating things or focusing on the short term? Is this somehow going to backlash where you're looking at a PET scan and you're making an interpretation, there's no standardized reporting, and you're doing something different? You know, does that, does that lead to issues or problems? I think the radiation with a single dose of carbo, agree, that could be administered anywhere reasonably well by, you know, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, but I don't think that that really should be a driver. There's a lot of data that suggests that outcomes are actually better at higher volume centers, and that's not the main point of this. I mean, where, where do you think all this is heading? You know, fast forward five years, you know, is this going to be like a prostate cancer talk where we can do surveillance or focal <laughs> therapy or surgery or radiation with their without hormones and Abby? And where is this going? No, no, hopefully not. I think I think we will plateau pretty quickly in, in terms of the options because we have our three sort of treatment modalities. We're not looking for more therapeutic sort of systemic options in this setting, but I think where we're headed is we're going to individualize a little bit more, right? And work you're doing and others are doing and, and us in conjunction with these microRNA-371, we will be able to hopefully pick out who needs treatment, who actually doesn't need any treatment. In our SEMS trial, we had about 15% of patients who, who ended up having no nodal disease, right? There were clinical N1 ended up being pathological uh, N0. So that's a patient who doesn't need any systemic therapy, right? They would have entered these 
other clinical trials have been treated with systemic therapy. So again, we we have a, a another trial as you do in uh, the sort of next iteration of this, which will be microRNA directed treatments surgery in this in this case for stage two seminoma. So if the microRNA is positive, we go on to surgery. If it's negative, like you said earlier, we will have a period of observation and very short interval scanning to see if that uh, lymph node of, of interest is involuting or not, and maybe it's a reactive lymph node. And if they turn positive, certainly we'll go to surgery, and if they shrink and remain negative, we can follow these patients. Many of those lymph nodes are completely benign, and they may be 1.2 centimeters in the landing zone, and, and they're, they're benign. So that's where I'm seeing, you know, the future is sort of incorporation, and hopefully with your help and others, these will become more routine tests that we can actually order and act on them like we do with, with Jimmer Marcus right now. Yeah, I think it's wonderful, and it is exciting. And, you know, I feel like really, even at this stage of my career, that this is a team sport, and at the center of it really is a patient, you know, understanding what's important to them, being able to offer all options, whatever those might kind of look like discuss them comprehensively with experts is is really what's going to be exciting here. And, and the biomarker work that you've been involved with, we've been doing is, is tremendously exciting. And I think it's going to be a, um, you know, really a kind of a quantum leap for, for the whole germ cell tumor community. Well, see, I mean, I've, you know, learned a lot as always. It's always amazing to pick your brain and it's really cool to just remind myself and for all the other, you know, urologists that you can like take an idea, make an observation, think about things a little bit differently and potentially change the way a disease is treated. But as we approach, you know, 50 minutes or so, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership? Uh, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for this and, and for your support throughout the years uh, with these concepts and really being a contributor to the germ cell investigative community. Tremendous work as always. Parting words is just when you have a germ cell tumor that you're not quite sure what the management might be, or you might think the patient might be a candidate, you know, pick up the phone and reach out to any one of us. We're always happy to talk to you about the management for the, for a particular patient. Like you said, it's highly nuanced. And then I think it's really difficult unless you do this every day to, to sort of cookbook this because many patients do not fall into those little boxes and categories that we like to do in, in medicine. So we're always happy to answer any questions. You re reach out to a number of folks around the country who are, who are always available for, for the, these types of questions. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Getting it right than getting it hastily is critical. There's almost never a reason to rush in and start doing stuff unless you're pretty sure it's the right thing to do. And I'll make a plug. One of my, not one of my, my favorite annual conferences, the Shelby Webster Conference, where we just run through nutty, insane, low probability cases and they don't fall into the textbooks and, and things along those lines. So yeah, absolutely. Phone a friend and I've never met anybody in the germ cell tumor community who's not happy to help. Well, hey, see ya. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for spearheading a lot of the important ongoing work. And for any patients that are out there, be your own advocate, do your homework, do your research. And, you know, again, getting it right is probably better than jumping into something. Thanks again. Thank you, Aditya. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. 
and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.